like to um, give away, when I can, some new books I've run across that I feel like are really uh, beneficial and helpful. And uh, I love Tim Keller, and he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and it's a pretty thick, intimidating book, but he's just come out this hot off the press, uh, a book, and it is a, a daily devotional, 365-day devotional. And, and so I, I got on your bulletin there, if you, you can't probably see that on the screen, but I have, if you have one with a number one on it, um, does anybody have a number one? Right there in that spot. If you don't have a number one, we'll go with number two. Does anybody have a two? Three. Two. What do you have? Four. Does anybody have three, two, or one? Allie has, what do you have? One. All right. Right here you go. You're welcome. And as Jeremy mentioned, that this, ha this passage today, we're going to touch on some sensitive issues and actually... While he's correct that this uh, passage does deal extensively with divorce, we're going to really step back to really what Jesus was really getting at, which is the meaning of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the design of marriage. And so that's really more in line with why the warning was. And so if your kids are aged where they might go to G-Kids, you may want to consider that at somewhere during the message. Um, I, if you've been around here long, you know that I avoid politics. I avoid those like hot button issues for the sake of doing it. Some preachers want to hit on those sensitive topics every single week. I feel like that that's not the way that I handle scripture. But I think today at this t topic really lends itself to really address something which is a hot button social issue today. And again, this is not a, a political statement, but it just shows you kind of the state of where we are as a, a as a people, as a society in this issue. Um, maybe you saw this in a recent political debate. Someone um, asked uh, Elizabeth Warren hypothetically if somebody came up to her and they said this was an old-fashioned support, supporter of hers and asked her what she believed about marriage being between one man and one woman. And her response was, I'm going to assume it was a guy who said that. This is quoting word for word. I'm going to assume it was a guy who said that, Warren stated. And I'm going to say, well then just marry one woman. I'm cool with that. She then paused and shrugged before finishing her joke, assuming you can find one. So, assuming you can find one. And so, what was she saying? What was she getting at in this off-the-cuff comment here? Well, she was saying, the main thing was saying, traditional marriage is pretty much out the window. Uh, if you believe in traditional marriage, if you believe in the traditional old-fashioned thing, then you're, you're out of touch with times, out of touch with reality. And then also she was saying, you know, men, right, she assumed this was a man. All those statistics show that men and women are pretty equal on this. She, she said men are the ones that are more likely to feel this way, which isn't true. And uh, she says, don't tell other people what's right or wrong. Uh, by what you say, you do what's right for you. Let them do what's right for them. And so very much the theme of our society these days. And then also people, again, with traditional views, uh, you're going to have trouble finding a spouse these days because nobody really believes in those old-fashioned deplorable ideas anymore. And so that was the, the words behind her words. The problem with that is that God has a different take on this subject matter, and it's important that we know what his take is on it. And how do we know truth? If you're newer to church, if this is maybe your first time stumbling in here, or if you're newer to the, what the Christian faith is about, uh, we base what we believe on God's word. And here's why we base our beliefs on God's word, because where else do we find truth and arrive at truth? How else can we come to truth? 
All right, we sure aren't smart enough. We haven't been around long enough, and we don't know all the answers, and science doesn't give us everything. And so we have to have a foundation for truth, and God's word has stood the test of time for many, 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 many years, and it's authenticated by the fact that Jesus Christ, who this book is about, rose from the dead and was seen by many eyewitnesses who um, were testified to the fact that he was who he said he was and did what he said he did. So when you hear Jeremy say that Jesus walked on water and invited somebody else to walk on water, that seems pretty hard to believe, but there are eyewitness accounts just like any other historical event. We believe in eyewitness accounts, and we put trust in eyewitness accounts. So, so we want to know what God says about marriage because God is the creator of marriage. God is the inventor of marriage, and we want to understand ultimately what he has to say on those issues and when you go back to Genesis which is where Jesus is going to go back to you're going to see that he created in his image male and female Genesis 1:27, and the Christian marriage is a copy the New Testament tells us it's a metaphor of even a greater reality which is Jesus's love for his people his church and so our marriage is not only a reflection of God's good intent but it's also a reflection of the gospel, what the New Testament is talking about. We'll talk more about that next week. So our, our marriage preaches the gospel, and what we believe about marriage and our views about marriage say something to people. They either point people to Jesus or they point people, point people away from Jesus. So with that being said, let's go to our scripture we're going to look at, Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And we're working our way through the book of Mark. Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there, Jesus left there, and went beyond the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she marries her husband, um, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, I thank you for your word that provides us truth, purpose, direction. God, it combats Areas and things where we feel like we should know right. And your word and the faith we sing about helps us to rely upon what you say. And God, we acknowledge you as the creator of life, the sustainer of life, the creator of marriage and the good um, things that you created in order for us to glorify you and find enjoyment, God. And I thank you for your wisdom and we pray that, God, today that we will listen and be open to your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, our approach here at Grace is to preach the scripture verse by verse. And that's one advantage of going dealing with topics and one advantage of not having to 
be compelled to speak on certain social issues all the, all the time every week. In fact, I have people all the time saying, why don't you talk about this more often? Why don't you mention this more? And the advantage of going through the Bible verse by verse, book by book, is that the Scripture steers the conversation. And so if Scripture talks about it, we talk about it. But when that happens, when we come across a passage that's controversial in our day and age or it's difficult to deal with, we don't back down from that because we would have a serious, serious flaw in our understanding of what God's full counsel is about. And so his full counsel is there, the scripture is there to make us humble, to make us loving, and also to discipline us for holiness. To make us loving, to make us humble, and to discipline us for holiness for his glory. And so Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. All right, let me read that in context because I think it's important in this conversation. 1 Peter 4, 16 through 18. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name for in uh, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so you know what this tells me? This tells me that we have to hold up a mirror in front of our face in conversations like these. Because as I said, so many preachers want to get up on their soapbox and preach about certain issues all the time. And then you have the other extreme where some preachers avoid anything controversial at all costs. Well, Peter tells us a couple things here that we are important in this conversation is the fact that these words of God are for the church. These words are for primarily the words that we talk about today are for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. If we had a magic wand and if we could just rub it, fly it in the air and all of a sudden America would go back to where it was, where we think it was, the, it was perfect, the ideal, and, 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 and all these things that we get, uh, you know, are, are super concerned about, these hot-button issues, would go away. Let me ask you this. How many years would it take before we're right back in the same situation that we are today? Not too many. Why? Because sinners sin. That's what they do. Right? You don't teach fish how to swim. You don't teach a dog how to bark. You don't keep a, teach a child how to lie. All these things are just part of our nature. And so the, sin, the, the world, which is in sin, doesn't know Jesus Christ. We can expect them not to respect or obey the word of God. Why? Because God has given Christians a new nature. When we put our faith in Christ, we became a new creature, a new creation, Scripture says. Old things are gone. The new life has begun. We have a new power to begin to fight the enslavement of sin and have a freedom in Christ because of the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And Scripture says, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. And I say that to say this, because we as Christians, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you know how hard it is in your battle against selfishness. And we say often here, the DNA of sin is selfishness. It's, I want what I want, I want what feels good, what feels right, what seems right to me, 
and I want it when I want it. At, the, at our core, that's what sin is. It's I want what I want. And so maybe these, the sins that maybe we talk about today or the sins that we discuss at certain points along the way over the next few weeks are not the things that draw you in. They don't entice you. They're not the things that you struggle with. Maybe they are, and you've gained victory over those through Jesus Christ. But I want you to be reminded that they come from the same root that your sin comes from. And that's humbling. The same root that says, I like that. It feels right. It seems right. It appeals to me. So therefore, I'm going to do it. All our sin comes from that root. It comes from a heart that says, God, I don't want you. I want to do what I want to do. So as a believer, how much is our struggle with that very same thing, although it may look differently in our lives? And it may be different sins and sins that we think are not as bad. And so all of us are broken and disordered in different ways. And Romans tell, tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all people have sinned. And so we inherited from Adam the sin nature. And through Christ, he gave us a new nature. The old is gone, the new is, is, has come. And so what I want you to see that even though all of us are bent to desire different things to different degrees and the things that we want, these things that we desire as Christians as we mature and as we grow and as we come into sanctification, we now have the power through the Holy Spirit and the wisdom through his word to be able to say no to the sins that entice us. And so the, the, the sinful desire is not equal to sinning. It's the rebellion against God is what is the sin. And so let's make sure today that we hold up a mirror in, our, in front of our own face. Because we may be sitting here and thinking, you're preaching to the choir here. We, we, you know, we know this stuff. We believe this. But do you have sins in your own life that you permit? Areas where you say, God, I'm going to rebel against you. I'm just going to do what I want to do because it feels right, seems right, and it appeases me. And so as Christians, we fight every single day against sin. And if we as believers fight against sin with all our might and it's a struggle the world doesn't have a chance right the world does not have a chance and so we want to keep that in mind and that's why we say that the that it has to judgment starts in the house of God God wants to examine us and look at us and see where we need to bend our wills to his will and then I want to remind you also that we should expect resistance not only from this flesh that wants to do what it wants to do, but we need to expect resistance from the world at large on these issues, just like what I read in the example at the beginning. We're going to be criticized by, for being old-fashioned, and John tells us in 1 John, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised by that. And Jesus said the same thing. He said, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first, okay? It hated me first, so the world is going to hate you. And Jesus also said he called us salt and light. And I want to think you think about salt. When salt gets into a wound, what it does to a wound, it makes it feel painful and it hurts. And so when we give the truth and we're salt to this world, there's, some, there, it, 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 there's a recoil. I, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like what you're preaching and teaching. The Bible is old-fashioned. Your views are old-fashioned. So the world wants us to shut up and get with the times 
and to, to just go along with it because they don't want to be reminded that their sin separates them from a loving and holy God who longs for them to come and be reunited for their original purpose, created in the image of God. He desires for them to know him and to find the joy in him and to repent and turn. But our culture, like I said, doesn't like that. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by the resistance. In our text today, Jesus got resistance from the very people who claim to know the scriptures the best. The Pharisees, we've talked about this a lot. I won't rehash all this, but you know that these people were the people who knew scripture. They memorized scripture. They had it down. Yet when God himself, the God they studied with in scripture, stood right in front of their faces, they did not even recognize him to be who he was. And so the Pharisees came up, verse 2, and in order to test Jesus, they asked him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And although their question is a question about divorce, Christ's answer is really a discussion on marriage. And so we're going to deal with this in two parts. Today we're going to deal with more of the what is God's design for marriage, and then next week we'll look specifically at this trap they're setting for Jesus. They're trying to trick him and trap him into something. And so today we will look at God's design. But, I, you know, it's interesting that these religious leaders were trying to trick Jesus and trap Jesus in this area because the same thing is happening in our culture today. There's traps being set, especially if you follow the news or see or if you follow uh, uh, Christian or church or religious news. There, there's so much pressure, especially on large influential pastors and churches, to, to come out and, and, and say what they believe on these, this issue of same-sex relationships. What's, it boils down to, what do you believe about human sexuality? There's whole websites set up to try to make churches declare their beliefs on this issue. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, all right, why would that even be a problem? Why would people not, churches not, just declare how they feel on this issue? Why would they not just admit it? And I'm not talking about these extreme fringe churches here. I'm talking about churches where pastors went to to some of the same seminaries that I went to and ones that I would recommend my kids to go to. So it's not that these people are off base on their belief systems and their theology. They won't provide clarity because of a major flaw in their thinking. And now hang with me here, and we'll get back to the passage in a second. The flaw in their thinking is this, that the church gathering together today, the church gathering, our primary purpose is what I'm going to say evangelism. Meaning that while we meet, while we meet here, the primary job is to attract as many unbelievers as we can into this room and then share Christ with them, and then they'll come to Christ, and then we're going to teach them some other stuff later on. Now, is evangelism a good thing? It absolutely is a good thing. But the problem is you can't find anywhere in Scripture, whether it's prescriptive or descriptive, of a church that's centered around attracting outsiders into their mixed. That's not, the, that's not the purpose of the church gathering. In our membership class, we word it this way, and I'm going to have it on the screen for you. You may remember this if you went through the membership class. We gather for biblical preaching and worship. We observe the sacraments of baptism, communion, are unified by the spirit and prayer, and scatter to fulfill the great commission. What is the, I mean, the great commandment, what is that? To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the great commandment. And the Great Commission, what is that? To love our neighbor as ourselves. We go as missionaries to the world for God's glory and our joy. That's what we state in our membership class. And let me just say this. For sure, 
the gospel is always going to be proclaimed at Grace Church. Why? Because everything is about the gospel. The whole story of the Bible is a redemption story. It's a rescue story of Jesus coming for his people. Jesus redeeming his people for himself. And so if we can do even one sermon or one Sunday without the gospel, we're missing the point of the Bible itself. Every passage, every scripture points to Jesus Christ. And that's our song. As Paul said, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst of them all. That's right there is our anthem. That's why we come together. A bunch of broken people in a world that's broken we come together to bring glory to God, to worship God, to sing his praises, and go out with an enthusiasm, with an accountability, with a, a camaraderie together to spread his name throughout our community, to make him known to the people that we come in contact with. That's the purpose of the church. And so when a church structures everything opposite, which is let's attract people in, then it's, it's, it's no surprise that you're not going to state your position on controversial issues because, you know, we don't want people to, to avoid coming here because we want people to come. And so we're going to just going to tell you the things that make you feel good and the things that are really seem very loving, and we're going to avoid the tough issues. And so I hope that if you're newer to grace or you're, and you're sitting here, I hope you appreciate the fact that we come right out and say what the Scripture says and what we believe the Scripture says. We're doing you a service because then you can know this isn't my congregation. This is not for me. And, and maybe this is not, you don't come back again. But this is who Grace Church is because we trust the Bible. We believe the Bible. And we don't want to backdoor you with something later on. And, say, and you say, what? You believe that? Grace is about, they, they believe that? And, 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 and I was reading an account about this happening in a church just fairly recently. The, the pastor preached one sermon, uh, one, one Sunday, a sermon. And, he, and in that he said, the church should be the safest place on the planet for gay teens. The church should be the safest place on the planet for gay teens. But the church refused to disclose their belief, what scripture says about this issue. Well, a family, as I was reading, a family relocated from up north down to this area to be part of this church. He had opportunities to transfer to several different jobs, but they specifically chose a job in this city so they could attend this church, believing, according to their words, this was affirming church for same-sex relationships. Well, his daughter jumped in. She was in high school. She got involved in the student ministry. She began to teach, or the, the kids' ministry, she began to teach second graders. She was singing in the praise band in front of the kids. And then sometime later, she came out on social media. And the next Sunday when she came to church, they pulled her aside and they said, I'm sorry, you can no longer teach and lead worship, but we can give you some other lesser ministry jobs to do. Well, her parents felt extremely shocked and lied to and deceived by the church. And they talked to various church leaders and, and, they, and, they, and the church leaders were trying to you know, help them because they were trying to walk this fence and not really say what they believe. But finally, the pastor, again, very large church, the pastor emailed the mother, and this is the email that, that they sent to, her, to, to the mom. Your daughter's public pronouncement can be celebrated by family and friends, but, it is, but if we ignore or pretend it didn't happen publicly, we potentially will cause others to stumble, other volunteers who are still exploring their faith, other parents who don't agree or understand, and other kids who aren't ready for this conversation. 
I would ask that you consider if it's worth it to take the stand and continue to volunteer in the exact same position if someone else's faith would struggle or never begin. So you, you, you get this? This is the pastor saying, look, we're not going to take a, a stand. And he didn't take a stand on what they believed, even though obviously their actions showed how they felt about the issue. And so this, they were treating it like it was like their personal conviction. Like, uh, you know, you do what you want. Don't cause other people to stumble. Just don't do it up in front of people where they can see it. And so the problem is there, there's nowhere to hide these days, okay? I'm, I'm doing you a service by helping you see there's nowhere to hide. You need not just churches, not just elders, not just leaders. Every Christian needs to decide where they stand on this issue. And if you're willing to declare and defend God's revealed plan for human sexuality and gender as clearly revealed in the Bible. This question can't be evaded. You can't walk the line and try to keep everybody happy on it. Al Mohler said this, he said, those who have fled for security to the house of invasion must know that the structure will crumble. It always does. And that's so true. It always crumbles. And so my encouragement to you is know where you stand on this issue. Speaking the truth in love, just like I've set all this up by saying we are not a one or two issue church. We teach God's counsel fully and we first and foremost see that the scripture is to discipline the believers to holiness and then we understand then we have to give God's full counsel to the world but we do that with wisdom and we use and we use good sound judgment and thinking in the process and so I caution you I caution you to think that if you think that you can just slide by and not really know what you believe on this that you're going to be caught in a bad spot soon and there is a lot of pressure that is trying to redefine scripture and, 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 um, and, and, and kind of take scripture out of context and use it in a way to can justify people being Christians but still feeling okay about same-sex relationships and gender identity. In fact, if you Google scripture which condemns homosexuality, you'll get several pages of people writing that scripture doesn't condemn homosexuality that it's not there, you know, that this verse means this and this means that, and doing these biblical exegetical gymnastics in order to make it say something that it's not. The scripture is very clear on this issue. The Bible says nothing good about homosexuality, and anyone who tries to maintain any semblance of biblical authority on this issue must find a way around the scriptures that condemn it. And today, I won't go into all the scriptures, but I, I encourage you, go to the next screen. I encourage you right here as, as a great book, here are three passages of scripture. I encourage you, as we say often, be Berean, which means you go to your Bible like the Bereans did in Acts. You study and you see what the scripture says for itself. Write it down. Write down these verses on your notes. Order this book, or if you come by the office on Tuesday, I'll give you a copy of this book that really takes these scriptures and deals with the scriptures and it deals with the history. But scripture has nothing good to say about homosexual relationships. Nothing. And those who try to change the words and twist the words, I'll save you the time and the trouble. Basically, they boil it down to this. Scripture is not talking about committed, consensual, lifelong, same-sex partnerships. That's what they'll say. They'll say, oh, that verse, it talks about that. That's, that's not talking about committed relationships. That's not talking about consensual, long-term relationships. That's talking about something else. The Bible affirms those relationships. Well, do your homework, study it for yourself. There's simply 
no positive case for homosexual practices in the Bible and no historical background that will allow us to set aside what has been the plain and clear reading of Scripture for 20 centuries in order to come up with another opinion on this. And it is true the Bible says relatively little, especially in the New Testament, about homosexuality, but the truth is there's zero historical evidence that this was even an issue in ancient Judaism or in Christianity that they tolerated any kind of same-sex or homosexual expression. It just doesn't exist. It's a rewriting of history. It's a rewriting of Scripture. It's a manipulation of Scripture. So don't buy into this. Don't let your feelings, don't th- say, oh, I need to be on the right side of history. I don't want to be like those people you know, years ago who felt one way and then they were exposed and seen how stupid they were. Don't worry. Be on the right side of God, right side of Scripture, the right side of the Bible, and not some emotional appeal on this issue. Embrace God's truth with humility and love other people. Don't throw out your Bible and common sense due to the social pressure that we feel today. Because following Jesus has always been countercultural. Always been countercultural. And being relevant to our culture is not our goal. We want to be relevant to God. And chances are the churches that the unbelievers like the best are the ones who are being the most unbiblical. Why not? I don't want to go somewhere where I feel conviction. Why, right? I mean, a sinner is going to feel convicted by the word. And so, be aware, be alert, be Berean. Our goal is to be like Jesus and follow his word and be ambassadors in speaking the truth in love. So let's go back to our text, God's standard for marriage. In our text, Jesus was saying, what is God's original plan for human sexuality? What is God's original plan for marriage? What did God want from the beginning? And so while the Pharisees were trying to make this this trap and, and trick Jesus, Jesus goes back to Genesis and he quotes and he says, one flesh, one man with one woman for a lifetime. One man with one woman for a lifetime. And, and it's hard to believe that's controversial, right? I mean, it, it's God's created order. He made humans, male and female, with their distinctive feminine and masculine natures and their distinctive roles so that in marriage, as a husband and wife, they could display Christ to the world. They could display Christ in the church and his love for us. And we're going to get in much greater detail on that next week. But also what Jesus is getting at here in this conversation about to the Pharisees about uh, one flesh and about God's design, he was affirming God's standard And Jesus was also saying that any deviation from that standard, homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex, or unbiblical divorce, is sin because it doesn't measure up to the perfect standard of God. So God set his perfect standard, any deviation. So Jesus said becoming one flesh is one man with one woman for a lifetime. Now, if you're single here, don't think, well, where does that leave me here? We talked a lot in Corinthians about how that being single and if you've been given the the gift of celibacy, that that's actually an advantage. And Paul talks great a deal about the fact that that single people have this incredible advantage to live out God's commands and to live uh, with even more time devoted for his kingdom work. And so don't think because today we're dealing with marriage that you can't reflect God in your singleness. Absolutely not true. Just the opposite is that. And Paul says, I'd rather you be like me. And so if you've been giving that gift, 
although sometimes in our society we don't think of that as a gift, but it's a gift that God has given for you in order to serve him in ways that married people and those who have families are unable to do. So I encourage you, don't feel left out today. Be excited the fact that God has maybe given you that gift in the situation you're in. So Jesus said, becoming one flesh is one man with one woman for a lifetime. Look at verse 7 again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And, and this terminology of one flesh, it's so much more than just a beautiful, poetic expression that's kind of shared this deeper reality. I mean, this is fundamentally, this, this is the standard that God's saying, what God is saying about a marriage is unbelievable, that husband and wife are not just two people who room together, who decide to do life together. Their lives actually do blend into one another. A marriage relationship, God's design would, that it would be so committed, so unified, and so intimate that the only words that you could use for it is one flesh. One flesh. And maybe if you were married in a traditional wedding, the pastor talked about that, and he talked about how that divorce just rips it apart. And you may remember that conversation, that, that, that sermon at your wedding. God's design for us, one flesh, is un, unreal. It's incredible, the standard he set. And I love Ray Steadman's practical commentary on this. He says, they actually become one. It is therefore true that what hurts the wife damages the husband. It cannot help but do so. And if he is bitter toward her, it will eat like a cancer in his own life and heart. That is why if you have had a squabble with your spouse, you may find yourself unable to do your work properly that day. Anybody relate to that? Because when they hurt and when things aren't right with that one flesh, you just kind of shut down. Don't think you're alone on that. You kind of just shut down because, well, the world isn't right because I'm not right with my spouse. God gave you that feeling because you're one. You're one flesh. So mom's in here. When God, sees, when God sees you and your child, he looks at you today and sees you and your child, he sees two people. When he looks and even sees twins, he sees two people. If he sees you and your mom, two people. But in some unique way, when God looks and sees a husband and wife, he sees one, one flesh, one flesh. That's remarkable. It's unbelievable that God has put us together, Michelle and I, you and your spouse together, as one unit on one mission for one purpose, to glorify him, represent him the way that he loves his church, we're to love one another and display that for the world. And so what is your marriage preaching? What is your relationship saying to those around you? One man with one woman, God invented, God's design, God's purpose. And let me just finish with this. Sorry, I'm having all kinds of trouble today. Um, let me just finish with this. Jesus is your only hope. Unbeliever in here, Jesus is your only hope. You can try to muscle up all the moral energy that you possibly can to do good things and do right things and be a kind and generous and loving person. But when you don't have the Holy Spirit, when you don't have Jesus, and you hit a wall when something in the word goes against the way that you feel, 
you won't help but default to your feelings. You're going to default to what seems right. And scripture talks about there's a way that seems right to a man. It feels right, but the end is always death and destruction. You see, I trust the inventor of something, don't you? If God said, this is for your joy and it's for my glory, he probably knows what he's talking about, right? And, and, and that's why if, you, if you're astute to this issue and if you understand the, the, the links that are being gone to by people who are trying to hold to some authority of the Bible to make a case for same-sex relationships and how that's okay with God and the Bible is just not talking about that at all you know that there's got to be something deeper there. Why not just throw the Bible out and say, I'm just going to live my life. But you see, there's this, there's this tug, there's this pull because there's a tension there. Because there's something greater than ourselves. We know it. We know it. And we can't, as Romans 1 talk about, we can't walk out and look at the, the universe and look at the stars and look at the sky and, and look at nature and not arrive at the fact that we didn't land here by accident. There is an intelligent designer. And if he designed this world with intelligence and forethought and wisdom, he probably designed marriage with the same forethought and wisdom and purpose. He had a reason. And when we push against God, we push against his reasons for things and why he did things, it's always going to end up stealing joy. And so, unbeliever, Jesus is your only answer. It's not changing your political beliefs changing the way you feel on, on social issues, Jesus is the answer. And those who are in here, and maybe you're just struggling with sin, and maybe even this sin of same-sex attraction, and the church doesn't talk a lot about that. But Romans 1 does, and it talks about how that when things continue to spiral downward in a society, that says God kind of just turns them over to just running reckless with your passions. And so maybe yours is a result of the sins of your fathers or forefathers. Maybe yours is uh, an, out, out, uh, like an outcry of something that happened to you and you're struggling with identity and, and what, what, what these feelings are that you're dealing with. I encourage you to seek help, seek counsel, seek godly advice to help you. And let me, let me just put your mind at ease for a second if you find yourself in this situation. Every Christian in here struggles big time with sin. And sin is sin, a rebellion against God. And so don't buy into the culture, oh, be who you are, be who you were made to be. Look, if I was who I am and who I'm made to be, I would be one of the nastiest, meanest persons that ever existed on this planet, okay? I had that in me that I could be a horrible person. But the word and the spirit keep me in check. And I seek God for victory over any sin and every sin because I want to be holy as God is holy. And so I'm here to give you hope. Don't beat yourself up over the fact that these, these feelings and these desires in you and, and, and you feel so weighed down and guilty about them. Seek biblical wisdom and counsel. It, it's a shame, and I've known people in my own life who the church has pushed into the corners, into the dark corners. And some have even ended their own lives because of this frustration and these temptations they were dealing with because the church would never say anything about them. Godly counsel. 
godly help. Seek the word. Be in Jesus' presence. He will change our hearts. And that's where it comes from. The heart that desires to know and love Jesus and honor God and be holy as God is holy. Father God, we thank you for your word, God, even on days when your word tells us things that go 180 degrees against this culture and our society and the, what's esteemed and valued. And God, we pray that we will not be ashamed of you, but God, help us to find that balance of being loving and kind and patient. And God, help us to have the wisdom to know how to point sinners toward you, to our holy God, but at the same time, walk in humility, looking into the mirror of your word, realizing that we're the biggest sinners that we know. And God, I pray that you'll allow our church to be a church that loves, that speaks the truth in love. And God, that people can truly see this as a place where truth will be given and we won't try to trick you to believe, thinking we believe something we don't, but at the same time, we want to help steer everyone to Christ and to the eternal life he gives and the joy he gives when we follow God's directions and God's purposes for living. In Jesus' name we pray.